The job of United States Secretary of Defense is a difficult and daunting one at the best of times. The period between July 2019 and November 2020 was not the best of times. Aside from the United States' various enmeshments abroad, there was an unprecedented menace at home, the occupant of the White House. Our special guest in this episode of The Foreign Desk was that U.S. Secretary of Defense. Mark Esper is a former U.S. Army officer who served with the 101st Airborne Division in the First Gulf War. After leaving the military, he worked in various government, think tank and private sector roles. President Donald Trump nominated Esper as Secretary of the Army in 2017 and Secretary of Defense two years later. President Trump fired Esper, or Trump being Trump, had someone else fire him, three days after losing the 2020 presidential election. Mark Esper's new book, A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defence During Extraordinary Times, is an unsparing and frequently alarming account of overseeing Earth's most powerful military while adjusting for the weird whims of Earth's most powerful person. It also serves as a meditation on the ethical dilemma attached to working for any dysfunctional institution or individual, to leave and raise the alarm, or stay and hold the fort. What is the right thing to do in such circumstances? Could the United States survive a second term of Donald Trump? And how should the US military and other Western militaries respond to current and looming challenges? This is The Foreign Desk. If good people don't serve, then you're stuck with bad people, and that's worse for the nation. And in my particular case, when that dilemma was square in the face for me in June of 2020 when the president wanted to call troops into the streets of the nation's capital. I had to ask myself, you know, where can I do more good? On the inside, where I'm able to push good ideas within the Department of Defense and also push back on bad ideas coming from the White House. And then moreover, who would come in behind me? I knew what would happen. That was factored big into my decision here in the final, what, eight months or so of the, of the administration's first term. Secretary Esper, welcome to the Foreign Desk. First of all, I know the, the January 6th hearings are right now, strangely, the second biggest story in America, but th they're also the one that is, uh, I guess, most pertinent to a lot of the themes you draw out in your book. Um, I assume you've been following the hearings uh, with great interest. H has anything surprised you? Well, actually, I've only been able to see parts of the first hearing. Most of the others have been during the day, of course, and I've been doing work or stuck on airplanes. And uh, what I've been able to pick up is through the news. But, but yes, there have been some uh, surprising moments uh, from you know, the comments of Bill Barr to uh, uh, what I read about the statements of uh, Republican lawmakers. Uh, so it, it's, been, it's been revealing. Um, and I've, I've uh, tried to pay somewhat close attention to it. Did you know at the time how far advanced these plans were to, if necessary, overturn or try to overturn the election in the event that Trump lost? Oh, no, of course not. I was, remember, I was uh, uh, fired seven mm. days after the election, and uh, this all didn't start happening. I mean, at least the beginning of it was the was the challenging of the electoral counts in various states began in the weeks afterward. But I, I assume, looking back, a good chunk of this began in December. So it, it began after, long after I left. 
the one of the reasons I ask is that the epilogue uh, of of your book, A Sacred Oath, does mention what you describe as Trump loyalists uh, at the Pentagon. Do you have any concern that if a repeat performance was attempted, that there are officers or Defence Department personnel who would go along uh, with what appears to have been an attempted coup d'état? Well, I think that President Trump would would not make the same mistakes that he would in install up front people who are loyal to him and what he wants to accomplish. And I think that's what what one should expect if, if he were to run for office and be elected. I mean, we'll come back to that prospect uh, in a bit, but obviously I, I want to talk first of all about your experiences in working for him. And and the book is really interesting in the way that you, you keep returning to the, the various dilemmas uh, that it, it imposed upon you. But I guess the key dilemma there is knowing exactly uh, what kind of president and what kind of man, I guess, Donald Trump is. You have that decision ongoing as to whether you stay or whether you go. But I, I want to talk, first of all, about the decision to join. When, you when you're first approached to become Secretary of the Army, um, it's pretty clear by that point uh, what kind of president Donald Trump is, that by then it's clear that he wasn't just doing a thing during his campaign. This is who he is. Uh, did you have any doubt about whether or not to take the job. I, I mean, I realise especially it's a, a, a considerable honour to have, you know, to, to be offered that role. Well, first thing, let me say, I, I, I would challenge your premise a little bit. I, mm. I saw it during my time in the administration, and of course, I joined in the fall of 2017, which he hadn't even completed a year yet. But what I saw during my tenure is him change over time. And I talk about this in the book that the, the, the last big phase that I witnessed was after he beats impeachment in January of 2020, we, we kind of reached this new new level, if you will, some would say new low, in terms of people he brings in and some of the outlandish ideas. But uh, but set that aside, let's go back to your question. Uh, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I have the public service bug. I, I joined the United States military at the age of 18. Uh, when I went to the United States Military Academy at West Point, uh, I swore my first oath to the Constitution at in 1982 and did so another dozen times afterwards. So public service is in my blood. And my view is I'm not serving uh, the person or the party or philosophy, but I'm serving my country consistent with my oath. And I think it's incumbent upon uh, all Americans, if their country calls, to serve. Uh, because if if good people don't, then you're, you're stuck with not so good people. Well, on that subject of good people, I think that that's the key to the, the dilemma that the book dissects. Because if I can quote your own writing back at you, you ask a, a series of rhetorical questions at one point. Why did good people stay even after the president suggested or pressed us to do things that were reckless or foolish or just plain wrong? Why did we remain even after he made outrageous or false statements or denigrated our people, our departments, or us. Um, was the answer to that question kind of a, well, if not me, then who? If I go, who does he replace me with? Well, I think I answer those rhetorical questions uh, in that part. And I say, look, if, if good people don't serve, then you, you're stuck with bad people. And, and that's worse for the nation. And in my particular case, when that dilemma was square in the face for me in June of 2020 uh, when the president wanted to call troops into the streets of the nation's capital, active duty troops, that is. Uh, I had to ask myself, you know, where can I do more good? Uh, on the inside, where I'm able to push good ideas within the Department of Defense, 
uh, and also push back on bad ideas coming from the White House. And then moreover, to your question, who would come in behind me? And of course, I knew at that point, the president had already done it once and had suggested it uh, other times, uh, he would put in a ro real loyalist into my department and probably any other department to carry out exactly what he wanted to do. And I knew, of course, uh, it would be an appointee because the Senate would have no time to confirm that person. So I, I knew what would happen. That was factored big into my decision here in the final, what, eight months or so of the, of the administration's first term. But how common were these kind of conversations among other officials within the administration? I'm wondering if you all internally or even outwardly uh, defined thresholds, like you, if we reach this particular point, if he suggests this particular thing, that's my limit, then I'll go. You know, I never had those conversations with my colleagues. We, we actually don't spend as much time together as people might think. You're so focused on your departments and your day-to-day -day activities. Uh, clearly, I had a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, and that's where we came up with the four no's that I describe in my book. But beyond that, there's there's really not that much opportunity to, to talk, or, nor, or at least I did not, with my colleagues on those types of issues. Uh, those four no's you mentioned, again, this this does get into a tricky area in relations between uh, the, the civilian leadership uh, and the military. Did you feel at all, I, I guess, nervous about whether you were getting close to any lines within that relationship? Well, I, I am the civilian leadership of the military. Mm. And so we, we have obviously here in the United States a long tradition of civilian control of the military. And so I think it was important for me to assess and outline uh, what my new lines were. I've always said and told the Senate in my confirmation hearing that I would never do anything that the president uh, uh, directed me to do that was you know, immoral, unethical, or illegal. And I felt after the events of uh, June 1st and the days following that I had to draw some new lines for myself. And that became the four no's that I wouldn't allow to happen on my watch. And as the civilian leader, uh, it was certainly within my authority to do so. Were there any conversations within the chain of command that you either participated in or were aware of? And you will be familiar with uh, the precedent, I guess, when, when President Nixon's uh, Secretary of Defence, James Schlesinger, during the last months of Nixon's administration is... And, and these these reports are reasonably well sourced by now that he, he had let it be known uh, to people that if they got any precipitate orders from the Oval Office to check with him first. Were there any conversations about circumvention venting the president in a moment of real extremis? Well, I describe uh, in a later chapter of my book, I know it's, it's big, so you may not have gotten to it yet, <laughs> where I'm sitting with my head of the National Guard in the days prior to the election. So this is the last Friday before November 2nd, and I call him in, and I have this conversation with him, and I've known him for 40 years since we had gone to West Point together. And I told him, because, because he was the head of the National Guard, I was concerned that on, in the days following the election, you know, uh, who, who knows what might happen if he got some order, something unusual from the White House, uh, I told him to call me immediately so that I could act on it. And uh, as I described in the book, that I need to be the circuit breaker uh, between what I thought might be something that would violate those four no's that would, would politicize the military, again, in the wake of the election. And so I had, a, you know, again, a very clear conversation and directive to him to make sure that if, if any he or his uh, state adjutant generals got those calls, that I was immediately apprised so that I could act on it.
Because reading the book, it, there's there's recurring examples of those moments where you, you find yourself acting, uh, as you will, as the circuit breaker. And some of the circumstances you describe are absolutely extraordinary. When the, when the president is pitching the idea of launching missile strikes on uh, Mexican drug cartels and then saying afterwards that the United States didn't do it, or, or giving a precipitate order to evacuate American personnel from South Korea, which would obviously uh, send a signal that North Korea could very well interpret. And there, are, there are several other examples of that. And does it get personally exhausting, I guess, carrying around this responsibility and thinking that I may be the only thing standing between war between the United States, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, Mexico, or whoever else Donald Trump lights upon tomorrow? Well, it does. It's, you know, an astute observation of yours. You, you do carry that burden. You know, of course, I was assisted in various situations with by different people, you know, when it came to civil unrest in the streets of America, I was assisted by Attorney General Barr. When it came to the use of military force, you know, I got assistance from uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and other on other issues outside the country. It was the CIA director. So, you know, you find colleagues here in these moments to help you carry that burden as well. But, you know, these events you described and others are, are all prologue to June 2nd. So when these questions come out about, you know, June 2nd and what happens, and I, I wrestle even more with should I stay or should I go? I have all these, all this prologue that, that I look back and I say, you know, if I wasn't there, who would have stopped these things from happening? And, and could they have stopped these things? And so that largely informs uh, my decision to stay on till the election to get through that and make sure that more bad ideas, and I describe some of them in the book, don't happen or not acted upon. I mean, on that moment, and this is going back to those those Black Lives Matter protests, and and you describe the moment at which the, the president you know wants troops out in the streets and is is idly asking as to whether you know we can or cannot just you know shoot Americans in the legs uh, to stop them demonstrating. Um, is it possible to say how how close you got around that time to just saying right that's it? I, I think uh, yes. I mean, I became very close uh, that that day, that morning, in fact, of June 1st, when the president is pressing me and the attorney general and the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff to, for, for at least DOD specifically, to bring 10,000 troops, active duty troops, by the way, into the nation's capital. And then as you, as you repeat, he, uh, he suggests uh, or asks this question about shooting the protesters in the legs. And so at that point, I just thought we, we've, we've, reached, uh, we've reached a place where it's, 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 it's hard to serve anymore. And, and then I might resign there, you know, that day, that week. And I, I, I'm, I've learned over the many years as you should always sleep on a decision, which is what I did. And I came back to, as I wrestled with this, that I was able to stop that. At that moment, I was able to push back on the president, suggest alternatives and prevent the deployment of active duty troops into Washington, D.C. And, 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 you know, of course, also prevent the shooting of people. So I felt that my presence there was a positive and I was able to do things that maybe if uh, the president, if I walked away and the president installed a loyalist, that loyalist may go along with some of these outlandish ideas. So that was, was these types of moments where I was able to successfully push back or, or divert that I thought I was better off staying. I mean, at those moments, though, and you do have an extraordinary perspective uh, of somebody who, who was in the room when President Trump was making these decisions, did it ever strike you that there was any 
grand philosophy or strategy underpinning this this sort of thing, or or is he exclusively a creature of impulse? You write elsewhere in the book that, as he put as you put it, uh, his views on the use of force swung back and forth like a pendulum. Though even a pendulum has some predictability, uh, the president rarely gave us much at all. Um, you almost seem to suggest as well when you're writing about the decision to target the Iranian uh, General Qasem Soleimani that, you know, the day before or the day after President Trump might have decided something completely different. No, it, it is impulsive. It's it's emotional. These are emotional reactions to the events. And of course, you know, we had the tragic murder of George Floyd mm. days before it results in protests across the country. Those protests, of course, make their way to Washington, D.C. We have uh, violence. We have people getting hurt. We have law enforcement getting hurt, by the way. So there wasn't that there was, you know, there was violence happening. It was just smaller or much smaller than what he believed and, and certainly within the bounds of, of law enforcement to handle. But to him, it was it made him him look weak. It made the country look weak. And, and he, he took it personally, was my sense. And so these were all emotional reactions. And look, my view is when you're in a leadership position, particularly the leader of the free world, uh, there, there's not room for emotion necessarily. There, you have to step back and look things, look at things objectively, intellectually with, you know, understanding what your, you know, the principles are that will guide you. Uh, you know, emotion should be reserved for the victims, for the George Floyds and others who are, and law-abiding citizens that are hurting these types of things. But, but you have to generally look at these things as objectively as possible. And uh, that was not his style though. Um, I, I don't want to make this entire interview altogether about uh, Donald Trump because, of course, he is no longer the president, but, of course, it is still far from impossible that he will be again. So on that thought, how dangerous a moment for the United States do you think a second Trump term could be? Well, you know, I've said on, on other occasions that, look, uh, for me, uh, I'm, I'm looking for a few qualities uh, in, in a in a leader, in a president, and, and really most elected positions in this country. And that is, one, you have to put country before self. Secondly, you have to have a set of core guiding principles. Third, you got to be able to reach across the aisle and work with your uh, work with people from the other party. And, and fourth, you have to be able to unite folks, to bring them together. And Donald Trump doesn't meet those criteria for me. So I, have a, I can't support him and won't support him. I'm looking for the next generation of leader who can uh, who, who can advance core traditional Republican uh, uh, policy objectives, and I say that as a Re Reagan Republican, but can do so in a way that unites people and that can grow the base of the party, because if you can't win elections, it makes no difference. And that's what I will be looking for in 2024. Well, one of the other things we wanted to ask you about was, of course, NATO, and we are looking ahead to an extremely uh, consequential NATO summit uh, in Madrid next week. Um, do you get the sense, and this was something I talked about with a few people during the Trump presidency, that whether or not it's something President Trump intended, uh, that he might have given NATO a slightly useful shake-up, as in especially the European members and making it clear that perhaps they couldn't take the United States entirely for granted? Do you think there is anything to that? Yeah, no, I do. I think he was absolutely right to press uh, our, our NATO allies to to uh, commit at least 2% of GDP to defense. And most of them had not. I think when I entered office, it was six. And we eventually got the number up to 10, I think, with, with more following. 
but he pushed them hard. And I thought that was the right thing to do. I thought he was right to push the Germans to end uh, Nord Stream 2. Um, and so, uh, but where I thought he went too far was suggesting that we would withdraw from the alliance or we wouldn't support certain allies or partners. He had gone too far. Look, I, I said all these things at the time publicly, um, at, at least with you know my support for NATO. I, was a, I served in NATO as a young army officer in the 1990s in Europe. And so I'm a big believer in NATO. So I, I do think that what he did shook, shook folks up some. He was certainly uh, saying the right things with regard to GDP and readiness and whatnot. And by the way, his predecessors, predecessors had said that as well. So uh, clearly, though, the biggest shakeup to NATO has been Vladimir Putin. And he's really managed in a, in a positive way from our perspective, you know, to unify NATO, to, in, to inspire others to join Sweden and Finland. Uh, but unfortunately, it's come at the tragic expense of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. But when you look at what is happening in Ukraine, both as a, a former Secretary of Defence and as a former soldier, what are you learning about what sort of war NATO should be now be thinking about in Europe? Are, you, are we learning that perhaps this, this Russian doctrine of, of massed armour is not quite the be-all and end-all that it once was when so much of their armour is so vulnerable to relatively inexpensive drones and you know troops armed with shoulder-launched missiles? on electric bicycles? Well, you, you know, as uh, Secretary of Defense, my top priority was implementing the National Defense Strategy and, that strategy, and that said that we were in an era of great power competition, and we're seeing that play out today. And it, it designated China, then Russia, as our top adversaries. And, uh, and so we organized, uh, you know, our forces, our operations to go against those adversaries. And look, I think uh, the use of drones, the use of long-range precision fires, all those things are not surprises to us. I mean, Clearly, as Secretary of the Army, those were uh, things that I advanced in the Army, it's U.S. Army itself. So those aren't surprises. The, the biggest surprise of the conflict has been um, Russia as a, as a hollow military with hmm. low morale, uh, inability to conduct tactical operations, poor generalship. I mean, you can go on and on and on about their poor performance. You know, tact tactically, doctrinally, they seem to have slipped back into the old Soviet habits of you know, massing artillery, pummeling cities, and then coming in with uh, with with uh, infantry with no concern whatsoever for the, the laws of land warfare. So uh, the big surprise has been Russian port performance, followed close closely by the, the positive surprise of the grit and determination and courage of, of the Ukrainian people and their fighters and their competence on the battlefield. And I think that is a testament to the arming by NATO of the Ukrainians and the training by NATO of the Ukrainians. And so I think we uh, that's a good model for us going forward. I just want to pick up on that expression of surprise there about the performance of the Russian army. Is it the case that the, the US Department of Defense and departments of defense around NATO had been vastly overestimating the Russian military for decades? First of all, you have to keep in mind that they, they are a strategic nuclear power and they mm. always have that. They have capable nuclear systems. Uh, they do have one of the world's largest armies, and so they can still do a lot of damage just with the, the blunt application of force. But I think we do need to go, we, the, the United States, and certainly NATO need to go back and look and try and understand why did we or where did we overestimate their capabilities and why did we come to those conclusions and make sure that we get a more thorough, more objective, more comprehensive assessment of Russian military capabilities. Uh, look, at this point in time, the, the Ukrainians have really taken a lot out of their inventory of both manpower and materiel and, and platforms. They're, they, the Russians, will have to rebuild. It will take years if they even can. And so that's going to require an assessment of, uh, of NATO's posture 
going forward and what we put where, particularly as we see new allies join, et cetera. So I think all that should be assessed now by NATO as we look ahead. And do you think, though, that it is increasingly important that NATO is led perhaps to an extent by some of its smaller members uh, who are much closer to Russia and that maybe their views should be taken a bit more seriously. I'm, I feel like I'm asking here on behalf of pretty much every current and former politician from the Baltic states we've been speaking to over the last few months. Well, look, first thing, uh, I, I got to give a lot of credit to your prime minister and to my old colleague, Ben Wallace. I think UK leadership has been exceptional in this regard, uh, both the, the the support of morale, the diplomatic support, the material support. And I, so I think the Brits have been real leaders here in this conflict. Uh, but to your specific question, look, the frontline states have always been concerned about Russia because they have a history and they don't have a buffer, right? Like the, like the Italians do or the Germans do and others between them and Russia. So history matters here. And uh, the history has proven that a Russian leader like Vladimir Putin is back to their old games, wanting to expand or re, re, uh, you know, reassert an imperial empire. So I think uh, they've been right all along. I want to think that the United States and the UK have always supported them and have agreed with their instincts. Uh, what we need to do is get the rest of NATO on board with that. And specifically, specifically I'm talking about the French and the Germans and the Italians. Uh, they, they need to step up and all the other countries in terms of spending more and taking this Russian threat more seriously. My concern right now going forward is that some of these countries are going to start getting wobbly because the sanctions are going to are hitting them and hurting mm. their economies as well. Um, there is obviously another Russia-related question which does go back to your time working for President Trump, and that is, again, as somebody who saw him up close, where did you get to on the idea that he was or is in some way on the hook to Russia? Oh, I, I never had that sense. I mean, I know that was... <laughs> popular in the media back here, but I, I never had the sense that he was on the hook, so to speak, uh, to Russia. I mean, you got to keep in mind that he was the president that approved uh, the sale of lethal arms to Ukraine in 2017. He approved the continuance of uh, training of the Ukrainians in, uh, in, in Western Ukraine. I'd been there and observed the training. So I, I never got that sense. Uh, uh, but clearly, he had a, a relationship with Vladimir Putin. He, was, he, he tried to cultivate that uh, in some ways uh, at times. Uh, undermining our own intelligence agencies or undermining our own policy. But I, I didn't get the sense that he was on some type of hook, if you will. Hmm. I mean, you've made it clear in, in the book, and indeed you've made it clear in this interview, that you know you, you wouldn't be uh, hastening to vote to re-elect him. But when you think back on the time that you worked for him, did he, and perhaps you know not even deliberately or consciously, but did he have any strengths, do you think, as a president? Oh, yeah. I, look, uh, every leader has strengths and weaknesses, some more than others. And I try to be very fair to him and others in the book. And, I, you know, I, at a personal level, I'll tell you, the president was very engaging. Uh, you could call him up any time of the day or night, uh, any day of the week, and he would call you. And that's, by the way, is unusual between presidents and cabinet members in, in administration. So he was very open and transparent. Uh, I thought that was a positive, uh, if you will. And you, you generally knew where he stood. Uh, but as I outlined in the book, he has his negatives as well. And I try and give the president credit for accomplishments. I mean, uh, domestically, he lowered taxes. He put conservative judges on the on, on the bench here in our courts. He deregulated the country. And then internationally, look, he uh, he advanced the Abraham Accords. He pushed NATO hard, too hard, I, I, as I talk about, in terms of undermining it. But uh, and then, of course, he also supported Operation Warp Speed. So 
it's a mixed record. Uh, you can find a lot of good and you, you can find some good and you can find some bad. And, and of course, you know, th then there's the personality side of it that, that, uh, that shadows it all as well. So uh, yeah, look, I, I try to be fair in the book to him and others. I mean, it sounds like a, a possibly strange question at a number of levels, given the, the colossal amounts of money that the United States spends uh, on its defence, uh, obviously. But do you get the sense that it's not taken seriously enough by uh, American politicians, American media, how important that military strength actually is? And, and you do you, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, do you think that a, a militarily strong United States is still as important as it ever was at the peak of the Cold War? Yes, I think, uh, I think it is critically important, particularly now as we, we go years further into this era of great power competition. I mean, we have war in Europe, right? The first time we've seen a conflict of this like in, uh, since the end of World War II, where armor and artillery being used heavily on the battlefield. And we have the rise of China in Asia, frankly, around the world. So we need a very strong, capable military. We have some transformation that needs to happen across all four branches, particularly if we're going to retain overmatch against the Chinese in the decades ahead. And that takes money and that takes spending. And by the way, a very strong military bolsters your diplomacy. And I've, I've also argued in other, uh, other times we need to strengthen our diplomacy as well. Look, at the end of the day, what people need to realize, and particularly some politicians back here, it is a lot of money. We spend nearly $800 billion a year on our military, and people like to say, well, it's more than the next 10 countries combined. And yeah, that's true. But it's true because, look, we have global responsibilities. We have commitments to more than two dozen allies around the world in Asia, Europe, and elsewhere. Uh, we do a lot with our military. We pay them well, and we, we pay for quality. Because if you don't want to pay for quality, then you get what Russia has, what they're showing in Ukraine. So a, a great military is expensive, but a great military, you know, deters war and preserves peace. And we, what we'd often say is, look, if you don't want to, the, the only thing more expensive than a, than a first class military is a war that it's not prevented. And, and the only thing worse than a war that you can't prevent is one that you lose. And so, uh, you know, for those reasons, I think it's incumbent upon uh our politicians to continue to sustain a strong, capable military. We in the military need to do our part to make sure it's not that it's spent well and not wasted. But at the same time, uh, you know, since you're over over there in the UK, look, I'd say it's important for all of our allies to pull their fair share as well, and not just in Europe but in Asia as well. I think two percent GDP should be the floor for everybody, because look, we're at, we're now in an era where it's the autocracies of the world versus the democracies of the world. And you can line them up on one side and all of us on the other. And if we don't stand together, then we're going to continue to be under threat from the Russians, from China's and from the others out that are out there looking for weakness, probing for weakness in the democracies of the world. That being the case, and especially when you, you articulate a, a you know, Manichaean divide like that, do you think conflict is altogether avoidable, especially between the United States and China? I think strong militaries with strong political will to use force when necessary can deter conflict, yes. And, uh, you know, clearly that was the mistake I think we made with regard to Ukraine and why Putin did what he did three, four months ago. Uh, we may have a great military. NATO is, is still a very capable military, and it's certainly the United States is, United, the UK is. But uh, I, I think Putin sensed that we wouldn't do anything because we didn't do anything when they invaded Georgia in 2008. We didn't do anything when they invaded Ukraine in 2014. And what little we did do, you know, he was able to surmount. So I think he miscalculated. And I think if we go back and look at lessons learned, we have to stand together and stand firm uh, in this 21st century when autocrats like him 
uh, try to you know invade your neighbors, which is why we need to make sure we, we play a similar stance with regard to China and Taiwan. How important, though, is, is continually projecting that strength absolutely everywhere? Because nothing lasts forever. Um, and I do wonder what you think about the theory, which I'm sure you've heard, that part of what uh, edged Putin towards his action in Ukraine was uh, America's hasty and somewhat undignified withdrawal from Afghanistan, that he got, he got the sense that the United States was not a serious power anymore. Well, it was hasty. It was undignified. It was a, an abysmal withdrawal for all those reasons. I don't think it reflected on the military capability of the United States, but it certainly reflected on the will of our, of, of our leadership in Washington, the White House, to stand firm with our Afghan allies and really stand against the Taliban. Uh, there's no reason why we could have pressed hard back on them. I've argued in other interviews that we should have we should have forced them or at least uh, tried to force them to live up to their end of the political agreement by keeping our troops there alongside NATO, and if need be, going back to war with them. Uh, but we didn't. And so I think maybe that kind of um, added to his sense that there was weakness or lack of resolve in uh, in Washington. And that's, again, that's an important thing, is you have to have both capability and resolve if deterrence is going to succeed. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time, so I, I just want to ask a, a couple of questions again, going back to uh, the key theme of your book, which is this the, the, the dilemma posed, if you will, by a, a sense of duty uh, and sense of responsibility to your country. Um, at the time that you were serving as Secretary of Defence, where was the balance for you between feeling like you were defending the United States from its enemies and defending the United States from its president? Uh, I, I, of course, we're always defending the United States from our adversaries and supporting our allies and partners at the same time. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's in those final uh, six, seven, eight, nine months uh, of 2020, I think, as I describe in the book, when the president beats impeachment and he, he brings in more loyalists and he starts making changes is when these, these outlandish ideas start cropping up within the White House and not just from the president, by people around him from the National Security Council. So it was, you know, it was probably that point in time, I think, beginning the summer of 2020, where I thought I need to be really on guard in, in terms of folks wanting to misuse the military uh, for political purposes. And that those were, of course, two of the two of the four no's that I talk about in the book. And and just finally and finally, because this was the, the, the final moment for you as, as Secretary of Defense, it is when you're fired a few days after uh, the presidential election in 2020. And I, I understand, I think, from this interview and from the book, why you chose to stay in post and not speak up up until that point. But at that moment, when you've been fired and Donald Trump is still president, uh, and there is clearly uh, a dangerous and turbulent moment ahead. Why not at that point uh, not speak up? Well, there was not necessarily a clearly clear and dangerous moment up ahead. Uh, I'm fired on November 9th. Uh, he, began, he, he begins objecting to the electoral results, you know, within a week or two after that. And that's, that's not inconsistent with, you know, previous presidents. If you, if you think there's problems with the election, you certainly have the right to go to the courts and challenge it. So uh, I, I didn't see January 6th at that point in time. Uh, frankly, my view was I'd gotten uh, to and through the election and had done my duty and uh, we were successful and President Trump lost, period. Uh, so what, what was there to speak up about? I certainly didn't foresee what would happen on January 6th. Now, of course, as we get closer to the end of December and early January, when we, you hear some of these stories come up, coming out about the White House, I joined with my other 
nine living secretaries of defense. And we write that opinion piece in the Washington Post warning DOD and others to follow their oath and, and make sure we have a peaceful transfer of power. But look, views have been were set for a long time about Donald Trump and the threats he poses. And of course, those were became superseded later uh, by what happened in December and January. Secretary Mark Esper, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That was the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper. His book, A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times, is available now in paperback. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week with a special programme from the NATO summit in Madrid and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at esatmonocle.com. And if you would like to nominate The Foreign Desk for the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice Award, you can do this by heading to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. We thank you very much for your support. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.